And God forbid if we joking and I, and I, and I hit you in the arm, yo, <laughs> hey, yo, hey, yo, <laughs> it's game time. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Welcome back to Humanize. I am here with Courtney, and we are here to debrief and kind of do a deeper dive of last week's episode with Dr. Raylan Rebecca, who is a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder in the um, Ethics Studies Department, and he teaches a wide range of courses, including critical race theory, feminist hip-hop theory, and the energy was incredible. I agree 100%. I think the students that he has and individuals that learn from him are truly blessed. And and I'm sure they know. They give him all his flowers while he's alive and let let him know that he is a beast. Yes, he totally is. And so he spoke with us on radical inclusion and on critical race theory and on the opening, um, which will happen this fall, 2022, the opening of the Center for African and African-American studies at the University of Colorado. And um, just that the role of that center in the community here in Boulder, predominantly white community, um, will do to hopefully attract and retain a, um, yeah, I guess like a a focus, a centralization around African and African-American studies and experience and critical dialogue and all that. So, A hundred percent. I think individuals, our counterparts, white people, non-blacks have to realize that money is not something that really drives us to to stay at a place for a long time. It's all about culture. And I think that's what he, the, the cause is trying to build, um, a culture where individuals can retain their, in his words, Africanity. You know, Africanity. Africanity, you know? And so like, I, um, I think that was dope. Um, I think, when he when he brings and it's really inclusive. He's not saying blacks. Um, if you're white, you're not there. You give us our spaces. Like once you are there, this is the culture where we respect, uphold, and make sure that the culture of African diaspora is upheld. You know, so that's that's pretty yeah. Dope. That's dope. Yeah. So that's what Courtney and I kind of wanted to explore today is like the cultural perspective. How it's this conversation is not really a black and white thing. This is about culture and depth of understanding. And we're going to explore that through. White supremacy is not a black and white thing. I just had to say that. I I just want to throw that out there. White supremacy is not a black and white thing. So, okay. Right. And we're going to, we're going to do a deep dive into that, but we want to give you a little context about what's happening next for the show. We're just going to take the next month, the month of February, and we're going to take a step back from recording and we're going to be doing some back-end visioning and fundraising uh, because we've become listener-supported, which is so exciting. Please go to our Patreon page if you want to even just give a dollar a month. It means so much to help us keep going and paying for our production team. So we have to do a little focus work in February. 
But that's kind of strange. I thought it was kind of strange, Courtney, because it's Black History Month. And so I asked you about that. I'm just curious, like... First off, I think you're strange that Black History Month is the shortest month. So for me, 12 months a year is Black History Month. I'm Black every month, and I celebrate my Blackness every month, no uh, unapologetically. And um, I, so I don't see it as something that is special. You know, I see it as something that's necessary. Um, just to live, have a lived experience where every single day I, I should be celebrated. People that look like me should be celebrated. Everyone should be celebrated every day, you know? So it's, it's, it's not a disrespectful thing in my mind that we're taking this time. In fact, I think it's more respect because we're taking the time to build and come back even stronger so that um, the month can do its thing and the can celebrate. But in March, April, May, July, October... We won't be forgotten about we we would have set the foundation to come back even stronger and deliver some more heat to the people. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of my mindset too. You know, I think it's great that they that there's a month that's, you know, it works for some people, but I I, I do think that's kind of our constant focus. So it doesn't seem, yeah. Anyway. Um Great. So we'll be we'll be pushing out some episodes, though, some of our, our greatest hits episodes from season one, season two, and maybe even season three. And then we'll be back in March to finish out season three and talk about what might happen next in season four, which we will create in this next month. Okay, so this episode with Dr. Rebecca, I just keep laughing because, like, listening to it, I was just, like, smiling the whole time. The energy was fantastic. And now, Courtney, you're going to be, this is kind of starting to take the cultural perspective here. You're going to laugh at me. Because my next question is going to reveal just how white I am and just how much of a culture and communication geek I am. Okay. So (laughs) when I was listening to this episode, I was just really struck by kind of like the, the energy that was circling between you and Dr. Rebecca. And it was phrases were thrown out, like call and response, drop the mic moment, like I'm just kind of wondering if you can, like, from a cultural view, like, just tell me about that style of communicating and, like, what was happening there. Oh, wow. So much. On a note that's not as light as, like, the comedy or the the good feeling, individuals used to speak like that so slave masters couldn't understand what they were saying, you know? they used Speak to, like what exactly? Like, um, have... When we, when we look at a vernacular chain, remember, the language was taken from us um, as we came over the Transatlantic Passage. And so it was hard to communicate. When Harriet Tubman was freeing the slaves, she would sing a little bit, and the response would be an answer to a question in a way where if someone else who wasn't privy to the, the escape heard it, they wouldn't think anything was going on. They would just think people were singing. And so, like, when we communicate in certain ways, it's so that people who are not in the culture won't understand and won't take that as well. And so when you're powerless, you try to hold on to any forms of power that you can. And language language and understanding language is such a powerful... That's why a lot of people say, hey, when you're Spanish, you come here, speak English. Because if I can't understand what you're saying... You could be talking about me and I'm standing literally right next to you. And uh, in a serious note, from a cultural standpoint, individuals need to understand, like, when we speak in a certain way sometimes, it's just to, to show camaraderie, to show hope, 
to make it so that you could feel like you're not alone. It's like a verbal hug, you know? It's like, hey, I'm here with you. I'm here with you, bro. Like, and say me and you are walking in King Supers or at Starbucks in Boulder, and I see another black man, I might give a little head nod, you know? I just showed him that you see. You probably didn't even notice it, but it's like, yo, bro, I see you. What's up? You know? It's like, oh, shit. You over there too? Okay, what's up? Like, I could have never met him in my life until that very moment, but the moment I see him, give the head nod, I've said, what up, brother? I see you. I love you. I'm here. We still living. Have a good day. You know, I've said all of that in that, you know? And so it's saying a lot without saying much because, again, we don't have a lot of time. And so we still got to show love to people that look like us in a certain way so that we can continue to to have hope that it's going to get better. And so when you have those those kind of things, like you see how excited we get because when he understands what I'm talking about, I understand what he's talking about. He's like, oh, shit, my brother. It's I'm like, seen. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, someone gets me. It's, it's, you're being, you said it. I'm seen. When you dehumanize someone, you take away their humanity. I don't see you anymore. During slavery, when someone was cutting the newborn or the baby out of the mother, they don't see them as a human anymore. They're property. When I'm trading a person on the stock market or bidding for someone as a slave and separating families, you can't do that to someone you see as a human being. Right. No. Right? You can't. You can't. Right. You so, can't. And, and so, like, if I take away your humanity, now I can treat you like an object. I can treat you like a cell phone. I can treat you like a cup, a pencil, a piece of paper, because I don't see you as a heartbeat. I think that's why language is so a powerful thing, vernacular and, and linguistics and all of those things, the way you say dialects. Like, if you did a social experiment, right? And you put a Spanish speaker into a room with a person who's not Spanish, they'll be kind of depressed. They'll be sad. The moment you put someone else down and they say, hola, the other person says, oh, oh shit, let's go. They 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 gone into a whole conversation and you just made their day. Like, that's it. Their day, their week is made. They can go about their business and back to the pain. But for that 5, 10, 15 minutes, you, know, you, you just gave them medicine. And so I, I love that. I love being a part of that. And it was just like also kind of funny because I was like, wow, this is like I, I was talking on the episode about really understanding how Black and African-American culture is just really a culture. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is not a culture I can step into. You know, like sometimes I'm in a different like culture. I'll try to dress culturally appropriately and learn the language. But it was just one of those like, wow, this is so amazing to witness and try to understand and try to like see what I could understand more through this communicative process um, and the joy of it and like being able to like just, yeah. But I felt like definitely the dull one. <laughs> no, you, you weren't the dull one. At, during that time, you just being educated. You weren't the dull one. You know, like yeah. you just being taught. Remember we had an episode about do white people have culture? Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about the culture of white people and does it exist? Oh, right. When he was talking about white pride. Like, what comes to mind when you you hear white pride? And I was like, oh, that sounds horrible. Yeah, but again, white supremacy has made it so that even, see, that's how white supremacy Fs us all, like Courtney said. Like, if you are liberal and you say, why wouldn't you be pr- proud about your culture, your background, your history? It makes it because at the end of the day, you feel like your pride, your culture 
starts with slavery, if you're an American. Does it start with slavery? Or no, it started, your family members, I don't know where exactly where your, your ancestry is from, but it's, it didn't start there. Say you were Irish. Why could you be excited to be Irish or Italian right. or something, you know? So. so let's bring in a quote here from Dr. Rebecca, which opens up some doors to talk about this. Do you know my mother said that the more difficult conversation to have with me was not the birds and the bees. It was about race and racism. It was about when I was nine years old and I invited <laughs> uh, a young white brother, blonde hair, blue eyed, to my birthday party. And I get to his house to pick him up. We're going to take him. We're going to go to Pizza Hut or somewhere. We're going to go get pizza. I get to the door. He's crying. Said, oh, yeah, my, my parents said I can't go with you to your birthday party. I said, why? He said, because you're an N-word. I'm nine years old. He said, because you're an N-word. So, again, so waiting. I think the whole waiting thing, that's part of, that's a white privilege that most non-white, right, people don't, we don't, the, Non-white children don't have the luxury. We're well aware of race, how we get treated differently on so many different levels. And so what would happen if we did expose the group who thinks of themselves as race-less, <laughs> white folk, they don't think that they have, race is something that only, like right now, people run around saying people of color. Is that just a 21st century remix of colored people? So when he was talking about a group that thinks of themselves as race-less, I mean, that really resonates for me. That really resonates for how I was brought up. But I can remember kind of like this sadness of like, why don't I have a rich culture? Why don't I have like a rich identity? I went to this like private elementary middle school where they really wanted to celebrate cultural differences. And in that their celebration for me, it was like, just like the sadness of like, oh, like, are there any traditions that are unique? And then I was like, well, I guess we have a way to do weddings in this country. And then they have other ways to do weddings. The implications of like not having a race and not having a culture, it's a very strange part of white supremacy culture to me because, well, I mean, it's brilliant in that it positions everything else as other, everything else is marginalized to the central, the central like, this is how we do it. And then that's how other people exist. And they're trying, you know. And you you followed up with this question, why do you not want to look critically at something as important as race? Because this conversation turned to critical race theory. And my response to that is like, a lot of white people don't think that there's race. Because like, why, why would we want to look critically at something that we don't believe exists because we're raceless? So it's like, it, it, it just really highlighted how central race is to your identity and the way that you're asking that question and this like void that's taught in to a lot of white people. Yeah, when um, that story that he told, he also said that we don't have the luxury to not talk about it. This, whether you want to admit it or not, the, the inception of our country, it wasn't even about race. Race was just used as a tool to make sure that capitalism and white supremacy endured forever. And so how do you separate individuals that you're trying to dehumanize? It's easy. The color of their skin. That's the first thing you, that's the first thing you see. So you don't have to you don't have to do a, a credit check. You don't have to do a background check. You don't have to do anything. You can just open your eyes. Oh, 
All right, cool. But that black person, we ain't got to worry about him. Let's let's de- dehumanize him. Oh, that white person. All right, cool. It makes it so much easier when it's the first thing you see. I think it was a brilliant institution in order to make sure that a, a society could become and stay a superpower. It's easy as hell. You know, we don't have to do any background work. I see you. You are less than. Your plight in life is to take care of me because of the color of your skin. So, so now, let's just both understand our place in this world. And so let me use religion. Let me use education. Let me use prison. Let me use healthcare. Let me use housing, finance. All of these systems can be built on the simple foundation that you don't look like me. Economics is king. And how do we make sure that our king is, will always be supported in a way? You know, and so scientifically, it was a, a brilliant construct. And if you have the luxury not to really have to think about race, you you can easily say, "I'm colorblind." That's it. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see race because you don't have to. When my black ass walk in anywhere, I I'm well aware that and walking through Boulder with you at Whole Foods, they like, um, um, um Ms. Ms. Brocker, are you okay? And God forbid if we joking and I, and I and I hit you in the arm, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, <laughs> it's game time. <laughs> like, Emily, please pay my bail, type. <laughs> like, oh my god, oh my god. Yeah, so it's, it's it's that serious. Like I'm joking, but yeah, it, it can it can get it can get dicey. So so we're talking about, and we you know we're titling this episode. It's not a black and white thing. Part of decolonizing our minds is removing that thought that it is a black and white thing because black and white was what held slavery so tightly in in place. And to decolonize our mind from that, I think one of the many antidotes is to focus on the cultural perspective, right? And to to start to like weave through this binary, through the complexities and nuances of culture. And that's where the cause, he calls it, the Center for African and American, because it's such a mouthful, the Center for African and African-American Studies, the cause from from now on. Um, I'm excited to see the role that it plays in this community. One thing he said in passing that I want to take a moment and celebrate. So he said this, it was very quick. He said this about the Center. Now, the second you come through the door of the Center for African and African-American Studies, uh, you got to act like an African. So he said it so fast, but the minute you have to walk in the door, you have to act like an African. Like, to me, I just want to share what that means to me, as because I've spent time in Senegal, Morocco, South Africa, Kenya, Madagascar, and what it means to act like an African uh, of course, there's a massive generalization, right? Like there's, there's I was so about to many, say, you act like a there's continent. There's so many, you know, urban, rural, Christian, Muslim, you know, so many, so many things, but like a lot of culture in Africa, especially more rural, you know, out of the fast paced city is slowing down and focusing on relationships. That's like what something is beautiful. And there's so many cultural practices built in. So like in Senegal, if you, um, like I remember I was visiting this remote area outside of Kedigou in Southern Senegal. And what you need to do if you go into a room, let's say there's six people in the room, 
you walk up to the first person and you saw, you know, you say, you know, like, how you doing? And then you ask about their family, their crops, their daughter, their health, their, you go through and you ask, I mean, it, and it can take five or 10 minutes. And then you go to the next person and you do the same thing. <laughs> So don't take leaving a room very lightly. And, you know, as a like fast paced Westerner, it can be like, oh my gosh, you know, but what is happening there, right? It's like, no, what is important right now? What is important is this person standing in front of me and absorbing them and taking them in. And that is, I think, part of the beauty that he's trying to transport here to a very you know, a lot of type A personalities here in Boulder, very fast paced, you know, some most entrepreneurs per capita in the country are here. And by focusing on the culture and what we can learn from each other in that cultural exchange is really inspiring. I just want to celebrate that and lift that up. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, just like as an entrepreneur, I agree with capitalism. However, capitalism in America here has taken on a type of definition that's very and oppressive. And so just like he's changing um, entrepreneurship and making sure it's relationship-based, making sure that it's um, it's something that you don't rush through. You take the time because it's important. I love the reframing of um, what we see as important. And that is relationships because relationships is all about, like you hardly hear or remember what somebody says, but you, you understand it how they made you feel. I think Mahalia Jackson said that, you know? Um, and so that is what I think he's trying to do. How did I feel when I went to the cause? You know, how did I feel when I when I left? How long can I stay away? When is the next time that I can go back? And feel that way and feel enveloped and feel like it's a place, a physical place where I belong I think, too, about the black and white dynamic and the ways in which that narrative kind of, like, cuts off the past. Like, I think of yourself included, a lot of the black individuals in the country right now, like, not knowing where in Africa they came from and the narrative around, quote, the dark continent, you know, like, the the stigmatization, the, like, all of the kind of, like, what we see in the media, the, the children that are starving, the like objectification of that narrative when really it's a, anywhere in Africa you're from is intensely culturally rich, way more culturally rich than, you know, the white American, like, and so, um, yeah, just like presencing the humanity of Africa, <laughs> you know, and even it's so weird people talk how people talk about Africa. People don't talk about continent other continents that way. You know, like every single country is so unique and has so many different it's a very yeah, the narrative is very compelling um for what it's done and it needs to be disrupted. Exactly. You said something brilliant. If we said, Hey, I'm going to the US, and then it was like, okay, cool. If you go to New York, but where? <laughs> yeah. If you, if you go to New York, that's different than if you're going to Utah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, I'm just saying. So I don't, I don't like, you say you go to Africa, it's like, oh, you just going to drop off in Africa in the middle of, like, wh- where are you going? You know, <laughs> yeah. you go to Egypt, you go to South Africa, like, what are we doing? You know? Right. Uh, but yeah, 
Uh, I'm excited to see what he does with the cost. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, we. I'm putting him on notice. We're gonna be in the building. I'm gonna interrupt. I'm coming through. You know, so I, I'm I'm so excited. Yeah. What else stood out for you from that episode? Oh my god, I felt really excited about how he talked about representation because I agree with him a thousand percent that he represents something that's even bigger than himself. He understands that he almost is obligated as a cultural retainer, like a keeper of a culture. Like it's his job, it's his occupation, not just to be a professor, but to be a cultural holder, you know? And so like, I think he takes that more seriously than he made his PhD. You know, like I think he holds PhD in pride as just a tool to walk into the barbershop and in one breath, he can talk shit about, hey, bro, you got a messed up haircut. Then he could come back out here and talk a pedagogy of hope, you know, that he he teaches his class. Like, you know what I mean? So he could he could he could hit you in both ways. So he's a he's a shape sh- a shifter and 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 I try my, and that's what I love. I love to articulate concepts, different concepts for individuals who weren't blessed as I was to have an education. You know, they had to make other choices. And so I feel like it's my obligation. If you come to me talking about economics and I'm talking to you about it and you understand because I talked to you in layman's terms, I just got paid. If you have asthma, I could talk to you about the pulmonary system and the lungs and not in this way where it's esoteric and, and you it's all over your head. It's like, no, layman's term, this is how the lungs work. You know, like I feel as though now I know how the lungs work and it was a privilege for me to articulate in a way that you can too. And so like, I really felt uh, a kindred spirit to, to that and love that. So when we knew we were going to be able to talk to him, I was kind of exploring some of the stuff that is around that he's spoken on and, you know, stuff from YouTube. And I was a little bit worried that uh, I wouldn't be able to understand him because... <laughs> Critical theorists use very advanced concepts to explain concepts, and sometimes it's really hard to track. And because some of the stuff I was finding was academics, you know, in the academic world, and so I was just so impressed with how he could show up and be with us, and we have a conversation. Then he layered on, like, oh, by the way, the critical race theorist called that conversation this, and it was like. Oh, it's like inductive teaching, you know, like what you just did was that instead of let me explain this hard concept. And then I'm stuck being like, oh, my God, my brain. And I can't really engage. Um, So, yeah, I also appreciated his uh, his ability to speak with us (laughs) in a way that we could learn (laughs) and listen. That's the difference between an intellectual and someone who can just read and regurgitate really well. So, like. Higher learning has a lot of people that can regurgitate, you know, that can read and take tests and 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 do well. And on a resume, that you like, wow, you did this, you got this. But an intellectual is the one that we we read about, we talk to, can be in in a lot of rooms. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And one of the things he didn't mention in this episode, but I heard him say in another space was, he's not an academic; he's an intellectual, which definitely I feel like we have we have seen and we got to experience and uh yeah just so it was so fun i hope everyone is if you haven't listened to that episode you can go back and and listen to it cuz it was 
I mean, it was so cheesy when I released it on Instagram. I was like, this episode makes my heart sing. And like, I, I, it was like, even listening to the audiogram made me, my heart swell. I don't, it just, and I was, and then of course, afterwards I was like, should I have said that? Did that sound really weird? And, but it's true. It was like, it's, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. So. Yeah. It sounded great. <laughs> See, that's the. That's I'm that. still second guessing. Myself. Yeah, you got you got to stop, yo. I'll tell you that that you you a monster. I'm not gonna be rocking with you this long, and you subpar. You know what I mean? You <laughs> you, you 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 that'll be the off brand for me. I gotta be in the room with other with other eagles, you know, so we can both fly high. You feel me? So, nah, it was it was awesome. No, seriously, it was it was amazing. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you for debriefing today. The learning from that episode will keep percolating for sure. And we will definitely have him back. He mentioned having some students on with him. So the conversation is ongoing. But until next time, please make sure to share. You know, if you enjoyed this episode or Dr. Rebecca's episode, please make sure to share it with one specific person. That way uh, we can we can create a movement. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Appreciate y'all. Much love. Peace. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.